Well, the first thing, um, I tweeted this out a few days ago or the other day. You know, I'm really, I've had enough of January, if I'm being totally honest. I'm kind of ready to move on. But yes, the president, President Trump, has been impeached for the second time. Uh, well over 232 votes in the U.S. House of Representatives, 10 of them coming from the Republican caucus, most importantly from Liz Cheney, daughter of obviously the vice president, um, sends a sound, strong message. Mitch McConnell has given every, every indication that he is through with Donald Trump. So now we just wait to see when does Speaker Pelosi send the article of impeachment across to the Senate. But certainly a historic moment, you know, something that is, is we've never seen before. I mean, there's only been four impeachments ever in the history of the Republic. Two of them go to Donald Trump. Well, yeah, possibly, as you already know, when the Senate receives any articles of impeachment, that's the only work that they can handle is the impeachment trial. Um, I suspect that we're not going to see this for 30, maybe even 60 days for several reasons. One, you know, it keeps uh, President in check, President Trump in check, make sure there's no bad behavior, make sure there is a smooth transfer of power. And as you point out, there's no need to impede the Biden administration because of all the silliness from the Trump administration, this latest insurrection. So I think you're not going to see it for 30, 60 days, if not 100 days. Um, you know, why? Unless you get guaranteed, unless some deal between Schumer and McConnell comes together and says, hey, you know, we're ready to do this. We can get this done in five days. Who knows? Um, I'm even reading today that there's reports that, you know, who's going to defend the president? President Trump's having a hard time even putting together a legal team. So I don't know. Maybe it could be a quick, a quick speedy impeachment trial. But I get the sense it's going to happen not until February. People are calling it um, the green zone, right? I mean, there are reports that there are actually more troops, more U.S. troops, more National Guard troops in the District of Columbia than in, in Afghanistan, which is unbelievable. Um, if you look at a map of D.C., they've shut down the entire mall from the Lincoln Memorial all the way to the U.S. Capitol. Four or five blocks around the White House, all of the Penn Avenue corridor has been shut down. 
uh, it's a no go zone. I mean, truly, uh, which in some ways, you know, is good. You're going to have protection, but you're really worried about these kind of second and third tier streets around there in case there's going to be skirmishes. Um, but the political intensity, the violence that is possible, um, scary stuff. And, you know, the capital is a small city. We, you know, there's only 20, 30,000 people that work on the hell. It's a small little community. In some ways, you know, I was telling folks, this is like our 9-11 in the sense, like, we can't believe how disrespected the one of the most important symbols of our country has just been overrun by these insurgents. Yeah, in some ways, uh, they'll be proud. The Biden people will be proud to say this is the smallest inauguration ever. Period. I'm just hoping that you know, obviously, this is a tier one. I don't know. If you might know the exact terminology, but it's a tier one national security event. It you know, the inauguration demands all kinds of attention and additional resources. I'm just hoping that all this kind of uh, talk about insurgents, skirmishes, is really a signal from the U.S. government that is trying to like push people away, tell them not to show up. You know, let them know that we're watching them. I can't believe one of our most sacred, the transfer of power, the peaceful transfer of power could be marred by domestic terrorism. It's, it, it's just shocking and really sad, frankly. Every day, there seems to be more and more certainly publicly traded companies that are distancing themselves, certainly from campaign contributions, the way they're engaged in the government relations process, from companies, frankly, shutting down operations. You've got Airbnb refunding folks, uh, not allowing reservations to take place during the inauguration to Facebook and Twitter, kicking Donald J. J. Trump off their platforms, uh, something we've never seen before. You know, obviously, the business world uh, doesn't want, you know, they're in, they're in business. They don't really want to be dealing with these public affairs issues, but there's no way to escape it. Um, the internal pressure from their employees to get out of this cycle of uh, political nonsense, to also shareholders, corporate boardrooms, there's really no upside for a company to have to support some of these yahoos on Capitol Hill. So shutting down operations sounds like a smart move. Right. And as you point out, the First Amendment is about the government shutting down speech. It's not about a private business shutting down speech. A local bar has every right to throw a patron out if they want to. There's no, you know, what Facebook has done is said, hey, we don't need you. We don't want you at our bar anymore. So this is, you know, this idea that free speech is being impeded. um, No, that's not correct. Now, is it, you know, could you make the debate? Should we be having these companies that have so much control 
that they can shut down, you know, Parler was shut down in basically 24 hours by Amazon Web Services. Is that a problem? Sure. But do they have the right to do it? Of course. So do we have to change the laws? Certainly we do. But um, the free speech thing, total nonsense. And, you know, I think you're going to see more and more. Once again, you've got like companies now have got internal pressure from their employees to be like, are you going to be a force for good? Is capitalism a force for good? Yes or no? We're excited to have Louise Schiavone join us today. She's uh, super talented. She's been in DC for a number of years. She's a lecturer at John Hopkins Business School. She works for NPR. She's also a journalist. She's a TEDx speaker. She is working at the intersection of globalization, journalism, and business. So I think we're gonna have a really good conversation with her. I'm looking forward to it. Where to begin? What a week. Um, pretty historic. I wanted to talk about in 2018, you had a TEDx speech, which was really kind of uh, prescient. It was about civil communications. What has happened? Right. I mean, I, I started the the um, my TEDx speech, and it's one of the core messages of my business communication lectures, it, it, with the concept that words matter, words count, how you say something matters, that uh, communication isn't just me just, you know, positing things and putting it out there and there's no reaction. It's a, it's a total circle. It's an ecological circle. And uh, sort of like what the Beatles said, right? In the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make, right? It's the exact same thing. That's what communication is. And we have seen that uh, the violence of the communication, the crudeness of the, uh, the communication, the sense that nothing is sacred, um, has really come back to color our society and and in my opinion led significantly was a significant factor in what we saw at the u.s capitol uh, on january 6th is this as bad as the 60s is it worse i mean what is your sense in terms of like the political hostility the intensity that we're seeing around the country well you know i mean as a child of the you know 60s and 70s um you know, we saw in, the, in in that period of time a lot of political assassinations, and so so we don't have that level of 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 real violent uncertainty. And I think that that makes a difference. Um, however, what's interesting is during that period of time there were uh, the issues of uh, civil rights, which continue shockingly to still be uh, an issue in our, in our society and contribute to. You know, a lot of the anger that people um, uh, that feel people feel in, in this society. Um, so, so but we, what we do have now that we did not have then, uh, in addition to the economic stress that we experienced during that period of time, uh, what we do have now is this, you know, this experience of the lockdown, the coronavirus where people are stir crazy. People feel like they have lost opportunities. Anybody in business knows that there have been lost opportunities, you know, from the, from the big CEOs to people who are, you know, out, you know, just doing uh, jobs that are not uh, high profile jobs. Everybody's experienced a loss of opportunity. And what, um, what Donald Trump played to was this sense of being disenfranchised, having experienced a tremendous amount of loss and having experienced a tremendous amount of loss because you were cheated, right? right. And, and, and so his message was, look, 
you were cheated. How about me? I was cheated. Do you like me? And you voted for me, then you were cheated. If I was cheated and you were cheated, then we've all been cheated. And that is the sort of a degree of, um, you know, psychodrama that I don't think people saw um, in the 60s and 70s. And it is um, a new sort of horrible layer. There's no doubt. And the communication, especially coming out of the White House in 1600, Pennsylvania Avenue, the language that certain members of the Republican Party are using is so heated. It's so hot. Um, I'm just curious, do you think as a communication professional, as a journalist yourself, do you, do you find that this is intentional? Like they're just responding to events? Like, do you feel like there's a master plan here in terms of the communication that some Republicans are using? Well, you know, the the um, pe- people are, are using the analogy to the um, the Third Reich um, technique of the big lie, right? Uh, that, you know, I won, I won in a landslide, he lost, he cheated, he stole it. Uh, and, and surely I, I really believe that this is completely deliberate. It is a deliberate strategy. Trump came into office as this big law and order guy and he, you know, you could count on him to reject the communist, socialist dictators of the world. But in the end, it seemed like, you know, all he wanted to do was hold on to power and be in power forever, like Putin, like Xi, like Kim Jong-un. So, um, and I believe that there was an effort to use all of the, um, you know, all of the tools that were available to him to try to sort of make that happen. Yeah, it's really wild. I've been, I've been thinking about this because it, it you know, January 6th was one event, but I mean, he's been using this language for a year, if not longer. Um, you know, we even go back to Charlottesville and that event. Um, but even as American, it's been really tough to me to be like, did I actually see a coup d'etat attempted? Obviously, Biden's coming in office next week and there's the famed 100 days. Is there an off-ramp? Is this a multi-year off-ramp? I mean, where do we, how do we get forward? How do we get out of this cycle babble? Well, I thought it was interesting that with the um, with 10 Republicans in the House of Representatives, the impeachment of um, Trump um, and Trump being impeached a second time and the question now going to the U.S. Senate uh, and McConnell saying, look, we're, we're not going to even talk about this until after Biden is inaugurated. What he was saying was basically this. Um, we're not going to have any more drama everything better stay locked up tight. We're not going to incite any kind of uh, vigorous debate is going to get people so ginned up that they'll come to Washington and do a, a repeat. And then Trump with his statement last night, which you know was like something that he should have said, not completely great, but way better than anything he, he has said in the past. See where he's thinking, you know, what do I have to do uh, to preserve my position as a former president? Because, as you know, if the Senate votes 67, um, gets 67 votes to convict Trump, he loses his uh, Secret Service protection. He loses uh, the perks of his office. And then the Senate is then asked to additionally vote on 
whether or not he would be barred from ever seeking office again. And that's like a second vote, right? But to lose the uh, prestige of all of these perks that former presidents get, you know, they have a former office and they get travel yeah. allowances and all this stuff. But then to be barred from um, f- from ever seeking office again, which like if I'm sorry, if you get 67 senators to vote to convey, you are going to get a simple majority to vote that he should never be allowed to run again. So, you know, that Trump is looking at this like, well, you know, I better. I mean, that really matters a lot to him. So that is like this uh, precarious calm that we have until Biden is sworn in and then the Senate up of should he be convicted and I this is what I've been thinking Mark I've been thinking that if you get a change in the conversation a change in the tone uh, a change in the way people interact with each other uh, if you don't have this constant drumbeat uh, leader of the free world being out there constantly slamming, slamming all of this um, crude, vulgar um, stuff that he's put out for the past four years. I think that that can make it. And I don't think it's immediate an immediate off ramp. But if you look at the experience that people are living right now, um, the the uh, incredibly horrible accumulation of body bags everywhere, but especially if you look at what's happening in Los Angeles with the coronavirus. Yeah. Horrible. Uh, and this is something that uh, Trump has, has said nothing about, but that Biden has been very keyed into. And so he um, I think if he sets himself up as somebody who's, who's saying, look, look, the main is that you've got to not die. Right. That's sort of the end game with the coronavirus is to not die. Uh, and second of all, to emerge from uh, the economic uh, destruction that the coronavirus has wrought. So uh, today we saw a, another record number of people filing for uh, uh, filing jobless claims. So we this is a trend that that, that is that is emerging. That as we get into 2021, it's going to be rough economically. It's going to be rough in terms of people's health. So so these are things that I think Biden can do to to change the conversation. One of the big, big ways that Trump went wrong was to assume as the coronavirus was uh, gaining momentum was to say that the economy mattered more than people's health. You know, voters went out there and said, actually, no, we care about dying. Um, and I think that if you have this change in tone, change in direction, uh, change in uh, priorities that I think I think that that I, I happen to be, I'm a hopeless optimist, a really pathological optimist, but I think that it, it can change. I think it will take a while, but I think it can change with a different kind of leadership, which I yeah. think Biden is. What is being talked about in the C-suite, the boardrooms around America? Obviously, a lot of corporate America has said, hey, we're going to shut down uh, political cont- contributions to various campaigns. Uh, you know, obviously, it's no surprise with the reduction of presence of Trump on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. What do you think is happening in terms of the C-suite and what should CEOs, corporate communicators be thinking about? 
Well, uh, what I well, first of all, you know, you have such a um, infusion of uh, millennials into the uh, into the C-suites, right, and into the work worlds. You know, of these young executives and and the customers of these big companies have a set of values that are uh, that are fresh. And um, what they are looking at is. You know, what are you doing about climate change? What are you doing about health? Some of these Biden appointments, I think, are going to be um, really key. So, for instance, uh, he appointed, I think this is amazing, a a great climate. His his strength in climate appointments, environment appointments is, is really terrific. Let's see how it works out. But right now, the signals are good. So, for instance, he... um, uh, appointed Deb Haaland, uh, a congresswoman from New Mexico, to be the head of the interior. She is a member of the uh, of the Pueblo Laguna tribe. Uh, yeah. She and and has authority over and tribal lands. Uh, so she uh, knows the value of, of these lands. Um, she, he's got um, he's got for, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry as a big. Uh, uh, point uh, member of his of his team. I think that's going to be interesting because uh, because because addressing the issue of climate change, addressing the issue of preserving the climate is a global is a global challenge. And yeah, as someone who's been involved in the sort of very global patients yourself, Mark, you see that all of our allies are really engaged in reversing the damage of climate change. So that is going to be huge. In terms of health, he's got uh, someone from Mass General, uh, Rochelle Walensky, who's going to step in as, uh, you know, she's confirmed as the head of the CDC. Uh, he's got Jeff Zients, who is, uh, was of the transition team, and he's got a whole separate which is coronavirus coordinator. Biden has put point people in these positions. And then, you know, uh, very, very important is that as a really balanced team of uh, people who really represent uh, America, accomplished people from, um, uh, you know, from all races, from all ethnicities, uh, from, you know, he has a really a well-balanced group of people who are stepping into these leadership positions. And that is going to um, be important also in the C-suites because, you know, in the C-suites, they're hiring people who uh, represent a diversity, the diversity of America, and they're looking for their government to do the same thing. And without sounding too rah-rah, but it's such a difference from what Trump did. Biden uh, has set up the uh, mechanics to to sort of make that happen. I always found it just amazing how much the Trump team rejected working with business to make advancements. But um, yeah, there's obviously a new administration. Team Biden has got a new perspective, and certainly a lot of the folks that are coming in with Biden, as you as you mentioned, have prior experience, which is really exciting. I want. I'm curious. Um, you know, I'm a huge consumer of media. I love the news. I wish I could still get the newspaper delivered to me. I'm that old. Um, what's going on with journalism today? I mean, I don't want to say they're to blame for Trump. I mean, obviously you've got to cover the president and you have to cover the leader of the free world, but something's not right. I mean, or, or am I just projecting or 
don't I understand journalism? So, you know, I'm a graduate. I have a master's degree from the Columbia University School of Journalism. Humble brag, a legit, a legit school. Yes, right. No, but one of the, no, but seriously, and not to be. Looking, I have to say that's a great, great degree. Yeah, I mean, and the, like, well, we had lectures from people like Fred, Fred Friendly, and uh, Mark Harrington, who was Walter Cronkite's um, executive producer, uh, and. Um, you know, lots and lots of established um, established media professionals. And I can tell you that they would be horrified at the advocacy journalism that we see today, where if you tell a story straight, you are considered um, sort of a traitor. So like you say, well, look, this is what this person said, and this is what this person said, here's the context of this, here's the context of that, here's where it looks to be leading, end of story, right? If you tell a story straight like that, so many times people will say, oh, well, you know, you don't care, you, you, don't, you don't care about justice. No, I, I do, for instance, like I am one of those journalists who will tell a story straight. I do care about justice, but um, I feel like, you know, I, my job is to tell you literally what's happening. Here is what's happening. Here's right. the context. Here's the meaning. And, um, and so, you know, and, and then, you know, I think cable news has a lot to do with it. And I worked at CNN for 10 years. And it is just a battle to keep the needle moving, right? To, to yeah. keep broadcasting and then to get, you know, eyes on your network. And so there is a competition. And so, so people look for um, not just a broad audience, but for a deep audience, right? So they'd rather have an audience that's deep, that will always be there, will always be sitting on their couch, watching you, watching you, watching you, as opposed to people who might drop in and watch you if there is, you know, if OJ Simpson is, you know, straight, you know, screaming down the highway in a, in a, right. in a white Bronco, right? Um, so, um, so, so a lot of it has to do with the marketing of cable news. I have never been part of a news organization that said to me, these are the talking points. Uh, and when you get out there and tell the story, make sure you hit these talking points. I have, I, I have fortunately never been part of a news organization like that, but I do believe that's what happens at Fox. I don't know if it happens at CNN, but to me, it's so transparent at Fox. Um, and so, but they're all on their own little, you know, MSNBC, they have, everybody has their own point of view and that is not journalism, right? So, so it's a challenge. And I, I do believe that people have to get back to just saying, look, here are the stories, here are the facts. But my favorite stories always were, like to do to, to break down the the economics of policy, right? Right. So you could say like, here's the tax change. Here how here's how it would affect a family of four with an income of seventy five thousand dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because you cannot argue with that, right? You know the 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 facts are there. So uh, so I do think that we have to get back to our North Star as journalists, and that is to tell the truth uh, without, without an agenda. Like yeah. our agenda has to be, our one agenda has to be to 
tell the truth in a way that people can understand it. It has got to be clear. It's got to be something that, you, that, that people will grasp and people will understand what the consequences are. I mean, that's, you know, that's here again, what we saw at the U.S. Capitol is, you know, people don't understand what the consequences of their actions are, the consequences of the news, the consequences of policy. And I think that is a, a, that is a responsibility of journalism to, to, to tell that story. And we need to get back to that. Before you go, um, we both have a huge love for the Scottish Highlands. Uh, we both have a love for oysters. Would love for you to talk about what we can learn from the humble oyster as we are entering an age of hyper politics in America. What <laughs> well, can we learn you for from asking me this question? Because as you know, I've done a lot of um, writing and a lot of film work um, about the about the oyster. And what I love about the oyster is that um, that it it does it takes its place uh, in the ecosystem. It breathes in and breathes out. And by doing its job, it is constantly um, oxygenating the environment, making the environment better for, first of all, its little group of fellow oysters, and then all of the other uh, members of the ecosystem that will thrive within an oyster reef, and, um, and clarifying our, our water, um, to to make the planet a better place to live. And that is just like one little oyster. And uh, and I love the story of the oyster because it is something that that we can all do to to assist in. Um, but it sort of has its own thing. It's sort of it's sort of like a little creature that says, look, I've got this. OK, can you just <laughs> can you just help me do this? OK. Um, and that's what I love about the oyster. I mean, it, 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 is, it is humble, but mighty. Well, I hope we can enjoy some oysters together face-to-face -face sometime so in 2021. Or and, and whiskey. Whiskey, any, yeah, all the above. No, 100%. I think uh, Louise covered a range of issues, you know, from uh, what's happening at the Columbia Journalism School to even the benefits of the humble oyster. So I thought it was a really good discussion. So I am going to go with Kirk Campbell. Joe Biden just named him to be the Asia czar for the new administration. Kirk Campbell is a longtime veteran foreign policy expert. He worked for uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He has uh, spent the last eight years working on Asia policy. The reason why this is important is so important. The reason why this helps Joe Biden in his, in his huddle is it sends a clear sign to our allies in the Pacific region, Australia, Japan, Korea, that we're committed to that part of the world. And also it's going to bring a whole of government approach to our Asia policy. That is, you know, working with commerce, treasury and defense. This is a really strong signal, really good person to have in the huddle.
Absolutely fantastic. That's a great pick, great suggestion. I encourage everybody to uh, check out that speech that the former governor of California made to all his fellow Americans. Brendan, thank you so much. This is The Huddle. This is once again focused on who you want in your huddle as we work through hyperpolitics in America. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>